Chris Brannigan and his seven-year-old daughter, Hasty, are on their way to the doctors. We drove there in the car and we're chatting, you know, and having fun. It's a quick pit stop before the big family camping trip he's been planning for months. And I got there expecting to be sort of asked, you know, how's things going, any updates, how's Hasty speaking? A routine checkup, like the ones they had every year. But instead I walked in and sat down and she said, we can confirm to you now that Hasty has CDLS. A life-threatening genetic illness with no treatment or cure. To be caught by surprise on a Thursday morning and told that your daughter has this really rare genetic condition, which means that it's life-shortening, that it's life-limiting. You know, the ground opened up underneath me and just swallowed me. Chris is now faced with an incurable disease that robs children of their independence before they hit puberty. And a choice. Does he fight to reimagine his daughter's future or accept her decline as inevitable? I'm Ian Wright, and this is Everyday People. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's only a kick. <laughs> a jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Before we start this first episode, I want to explain why I'm doing this podcast. When I was a kid, I had a difficult childhood, a difficult time at school. I wasn't happy, but then I met someone who changed my life. His name was Mr. Pigden. He was an extraordinary man working in an ordinary school in South London. And for some reason, Mr. Pigden took me under his wing. He taught me about football and passing and how to score beautiful goals. I wouldn't have become a footballer if it wasn't for Mr. Pigden. Wouldn't have made history at Arsenal and I definitely wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Mr. Pigden was so important to me, but when I was in my 20s, we lost touch. I was busy playing football, becoming a father, and Mr. Pigden kind of drifted out of my life. I even heard that he'd passed away. But then a few years ago, I was filming a TV documentary about my life and my career. And I was standing there at Highbury when suddenly from behind me comes this man. To be honest, I thought I'd seen a ghost. It was Mr. Pigman. Hello, Ian. Long time no see. Mr. Pigman. <laughs> You're alive. I'm alive, he says. How are you doing? I can't believe it. Someone said you was dead. I was so happy to see him again after all these years, to thank this ordinary man for the extraordinary things he did for me. I couldn't stop crying. I don't know what to say. 
God, I can't believe it. And that's why I want to do this show. Because everyone out there knows a Mr. Pigden. A person quietly doing amazing things. That person making things that little bit better for the people around them. Everyday people doing extraordinary things. And the first person I'm meeting on my journey is Major Chris Brannigan. British Army Major Chris Brannigan walked 700 miles from Land's End to Edinburgh in his daughter's name. Sounds easy. People do it all the time. But this wasn't any ordinary walk. To try and raise money to save his daughter's life, Chris decided to do this walk barefoot, carrying 25 kilos on his back. To understand the choice Chris made, we need to start in 2011. Chris is preparing for two things, the details of his assignment in Afghanistan and the birth of his daughter, Hasti. The scans were fine. Right. You know, she looked like she was going to be a healthy birth weight. Everything was fully formed. And then when she was born from literally like the first minute we could tell, she just looks a bit different. She didn't mean? look well. So Hasty was small. Mm -hmm. She wasn't as big as we thought she was going to be. Both our other two boys were born like sort of four and a half kilos, you know, giant lumps of uh, boys, you know. And, and you say during the pregnancy there was no, they never... Nothing. You know, all the scans looked normal. There was no indication anything was going to be abnormal. But Hasty was small and her skin was quite pale and she was quite jittery. She moved a lot, you know, it looks like she was shaking. And within... You know, I think the first 24 or 36 hours, she had a really severe seizure. She was just bent backwards in like this rictus of pain, you know, in this silent scream. And we had to call an ambulance and she went in, in to the hospital. And then it all progressed from there. Chris and his wife, Inga May, were living every parent's worst nightmare. Sleepless nights, hospital appointments, puzzled doctors. Hasty refused to eat or hold down food. It went on like this for a year. In the middle of it all, Chris was deployed to Afghanistan, leaving his wife to nurse Hasty and raise two boys under the age of five. Then, that summer, as Chris was preparing for a new mission in the Helmand province, he got an urgent call from home. Ten-month-old Hasty was in a bad way. When I was out there at some point, my wife felt she's dehydrated. You know, she took her to the GP and the GP said, no, she's fine, you know, and they sort of pressed the skin and said, no, she's okay. She went back three times in the same day and said, I'm really, really worried. And they said, no, you know, you're being, you're being a bit paranoid. Don't worry, just go home. And my wife sat awake with her all night. And the next morning she called an ambulance because Hasty's lips started to turn blue. She lost the color from her face and she was blue lighted in the hospital and the doctors when she got there said why on earth did you wait this long to take her in and she, my wife just collapsed on the floor she was broke with worry you know and lack of sleep after months and months of this going on so what kind of advice were you given where did you go it was a siege every day was a battle i can tell you so Hasty didn't speak really until she was about five, you know, maybe a handful of words and that was it. She couldn't form a sentence. She didn't have the vocabulary. She had no hearing on her left side for such a long time and reduced hearing on the other side. So she wasn't hearing the language. 
Um, we couldn't get her into the right school. We couldn't get her the right support medically. We just had to constantly fight like the local authority to say, you know, our child's different. We don't have a diagnosis yet, but she needs more support. And getting the right medicine and the right care is really hard because no one wants to give it to you, really. And no one's an expert. But why? Why don't they want to give it to you? I find that you have to explain that to me because I can't understand why they wouldn't want to give it to you. So on that occasion, when Hasty was blue lighted into hospital, we had Hengame, while I was deployed, was going through this daily battle of trying to feed Hasty to keep her growing and healthy and hydrated. And because she had this reflux, which was burning her throat, she wouldn't willingly feed. Uh, the doctor said, give her omeprazole, you know, and that basically is an antacid. Right. And they give us a tablet and said, you know, you can crush that up and give it to her. And we said, this is a child that doesn't eat willingly, not one drop, nothing. How do you want us to give, you know, a child that's less than a year old a tablet? Didn't work. She would throw it up. She mm. was in pain. And we don't know how much she's had or not had. And they said, why don't you just count the little balls that she throws up? So we as two parents, every time this child threw up the medicine, we're on the floor counting these tiny little, you know, sub one mil bits of medicine. And when Hasty ended up in hospital, we met another woman. This is another patient, a, a mum of a little boy who's in. And she said, why don't you get liquid omeprazole? And we just said, what? There's a liquid omeprazole? And she said, yeah, but it's expensive. It's like 50 quid a bottle. They don't want to give it to you because it's expensive. And I, at this point, you know, had flown back from operations mm. to the UK. My daughter's, you know, in a bed with an IV and a tube up her nose. And I saw the registrar and I said, why are we not getting this? And he sort of, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, we don't normally do it. I said, just get, Jesus get the medicine. I'll pay for it. Someone will pay for it. I don't care. But she needs the medicine. She needs to get better. And that was the story that went all the way through her development. You have to just fight. After seven years of uncertainty about Hasty's health, a letter arrived through the door. It was from a geneticist inviting them to come in. So we drove there in the car and we're chatting, you know, and having fun. And, and I got there expecting to be sort of asked, you know, how's things going? Any updates? How's Hasty speaking? Mm. But instead I walked in and sat down and she said, we can confirm to you now that Hasty has CDLS. Cornelia DeLang syndrome a life-shortening illness caused by a single gene mutation at birth, a condition so rare that it affects fewer than 450 people in the UK. I just, it felt like I was being swallowed alive. It was crazy. Chris sat in silence as the doctor went through a catalogue of characteristics associated with the disease, each more terrifying than the last. Cardiac problems, problems with her eyesight, with her teeth, her growth, cognitive disability, intellectual disability, with self-harming, with anxiety, depression. After that, we had to get in the car and I didn't know whether I should call my wife. And I thought I can't call her and tell her on the phone. I have to tell her face to face. I didn't know how she was going to take the news. And then I sat in the car for an hour driving home. And Hasty had been in the appointment with me and I kept thinking, how much did she understand about what was being said? And it hadn't occurred to me at the time, but it occurred to me in the car that she had been listening to this doctor talk to her, talk about her as if she wasn't in the room. And in doing so, I was re reliving this event and just kept thinking to myself, 
don't cry in front of Hasty. Don't cry in front of Hasty. And I got home when we got out of the car and walked into the kitchen and my wife and two little boys were there. And my wife was stood at the sink and she turned around to see me and I don't know what I looked like, but I could see my terror reflected in her face. And I asked the boys and Hasty to leave the room and she just kept asking me what's wrong. And I couldn't speak for such a long time. I couldn't say even one word. I was just crying. And and then I managed to finally say that Hasty had CDLS. And tell her everything that I had been told. Despite the devastating diagnosis, Chris and Engame held on to hope for their little girl. They were desperate to get ahead of the disease, so they started learning about it. My wife was on this journey of constantly reading and listening to other parents, you know, and she kept reading these studies about gene therapy that, that were doing miraculous things for kids with far more difficult conditions, fatal conditions. And she just kept saying, maybe we can do this for CDLS. Maybe there's a gene therapy program that could be done, you know. Could gene therapy transform Hasty's life? Was there a chance that her future could be happier, healthier, more independent? For months, all they could think about was CDLS. They read every medical journal and paper they could get their hands on and contacted anyone who they thought could help them. Scientists, researchers, doctors. We spoke to guys in Japan, we spoke to people in America, and they all came back and said, yeah, there's no reason why you couldn't do it. You know, you need get a good lab, and you probably need two and a half million quid and you could create a gene therapy for this condition. And we just thought, holy shit, you know, this is doable. Now I know what you might be thinking. Two and a half million pounds? Crazy money. This is nuts. Surely the end of the road. Except it wasn't. Not for Chris. He wasn't rattled by the monstrous funding costs because what he had now was a goal. Then one Christmas, as he sat in bed with his wife, they thought, do we do this ourselves? What would that involve? We have to set up a charity, we have to start fundraising. It means we'd have to tell our story. I hadn't told my mum oh, that Hasty had a rare disease. All that time? All that time. Jesus Christ. And we thought, you know, do we really want to do this? This is going to like turn our life upside down. And uh, we were talking about this on this one occasion. And then I realised, you know, we, we, the question we're really asking is, do you do something mm -hmm. or do nothing? Mm -hmm. And I just broke down at that moment and I said, that's not a question mm -hmm. any parent can say no to. I have to do it, even if it snaps me. You literally had no choice. No choice. So we made a GoFundMe page and then clicked send. And that's how my family found out, you know, I put it on Facebook to my six friends on Facebook. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it went from there. You didn't even tell your mum. And then all of a sudden, you, you're sharing it now because obviously you're in this place. It's not, I don't want to say desperation, but any word that's close. So you've done this post. How did that feel? Man? Uh, we had no choices. Didn't have anything close to the sort of money we needed. Mm. We didn't know that whether this was going to work. We didn't know if people would just think this is daft you know, and we would get no response. All those scary, dark thoughts you have in the middle of the night when you're staring at the roof in bed, now you're having to talk about and really face it. 
So they made a video and, for the first time, shared their private battle with the world. People got behind them. They organised bake sales and ran marathons. The money started to trickle in. But then... The government takes drastic action targeting the very sinews of the community, telling people to avoid contact from pubs, lockdown. families, offices... Or what was lockdown down. like for you? It, it was a bit of a nightmare. Mm. Hassie sees doctors regularly for consultations and sort of monitor her health and stuff like that. All that stopped. Um, Hassie really needs to stay ahead of the game on education. School stopped. No support anymore. New speech and language therapist, that all stopped. Fundraising stopped. Fundraising just fell off a cliff What edge. was it like with the missus and the boys? Incredibly stressful because we didn't stop. We kept trying to fundraise. Before where we were making good progress, now we were making no progress. So we were just like trying to, you know, ice skate uphill. It wasn't happening at all. And we were becoming increasingly stressed about this. Plus, we're trying to educate three kids at home. <laughs> I struggled with homeschooling my 10-year-old, let alone what you're going through. I feel so inadequate right now. It was uh, hard. I can imagine. I can imagine. So so when did you say, you know, something, let me do something, let me physically do something? So I think we knew about six weeks before lockdown ended, when, when there were sort of tentative signs, lockdown's going to sort of start to ease off at some point. We thought we need to be ready to go on day one and we thought maybe it's like Lanza and John O'Groot something like big across the country you know we thought but that's not enough people do that for fun some yeah. people you know yeah. just do Lanza and John O'Groot cycle it just for a laugh so we thought people aren't going to donate if it's if it's something that can be done for fun it has to be hard you know it needs to be brutal <laughs> and I can't remember exactly where the barefoot idea came from and I think I suggested it to my wife and she was like, yeah, that's maybe a good idea. <laughs> I never regretted something so much. Back in a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Land's End to Edinburgh, an iconic route with a brutal twist, barefoot, 700 gruelling miles beating down on the rugged terrain of wild Britain. Six agonising weeks on the road, flesh pounding on tarmac fractured by potholes, cobbled streets, hills and greenways, all with one cause in mind, to secure the money needed to manufacture a groundbreaking treatment for Hasty. Honestly, I, I, I'm just thinking about it because it's Land's End to Edinburgh Castle. Yeah. Barefooted. 
Yeah. And running. Around a lot of it, yeah. So you, so once you realised that, okay, I'm going to do this barefooted, did you do any kind of like walking around barefoot just on different like surfaces and stuff yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. So like five weeks before I did my first sort of walk, I did a one mile walk with my son barefoot you know i was like oh, oh, this is honestly this I, is a good I, you know the reason why when i when i read this and like the worst i don't even like being barefooted in the house yeah. like honestly so you know even like sometimes i have to put the put the rubbish out and i was like i do it barefooted i literally it's my worst nightmare so when you done your first like mile when you came back after the after the mile chris what are you thinking well, the thing is, I'm a bit stupid, you know, so <laughs> even though it was hard, I thought it'd be okay, you know, I'll, I'll toughen up, you know, and, and I did, you know, I then I did two miles and then I ran a bit and then I ran a bit more. And I think by like six days before I'd done an 11 mile run, I was carrying a bag. Yes. Perfect. And I thought this is okay. I'm all right. This was about Hasty and for her, it take on the world. What's 700 miles of open road without shoes? We got to Friday and Boris said, from Monday, lockdown's going to end. And then I bought a train ticket. I went to Penzance train station on the Sunday. And on Monday morning, when lockdown restrictions lifted, I was stood on Land's End. It was now or never. I thought this is going to be okay. This is going to be good, you know. And I thought, once it gets started, that's it. I'll be okay. And I've trained, you know, I had this idea in my mind that I could do like 10 miles in two hours and then I'd have a big lunch and a rest for an hour and then I'd do another 10 miles. So I could do like 20 miles a day in five hours with a rest in the middle. And uh, so I was sort of optimistic and upbeat. And uh, yeah, so when I was stood in Land's End, barefooted, carrying 25 kilos of kit, I thought, this is good. I'm ready to go now. And then, then the situation changed. <laughs> situation changed? Yeah, then I started walking. Okay, so I'm like one mile in, one mile, and I've already cut this toe. Oh no! So you're one and mile in, your toes are cut to pieces. Toe, which has a lovely... Oh, 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 oh gosh, Chris. Jesus! One mile. Woo. One mile. <laughs> Honestly. Your I think it's the weight That's me finished. How did that happen? Did you stub it? What, what happened? When I was training, all my assumptions were wrong. I wasn't planning on carrying 25 kilos of kit. We just like decided, you know, we need to up the ante a bit more, you know, because we were panicking. One mile and your toes are gone. I, I got like 400 meters out of like the visitor center in Land's End and I met three women who were ro running along the road and I have this massive, ridiculous sign, sign above my head. Yeah. And they're like, what are you doing? I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this barefoot thing for charity. All right, where are you going? Edinburgh. They're like, holy, <laughs> Edinburgh? And so I ran beside them, which was stupid because I shouldn't have been running really. It was uphill. And I think at some point, just because it was so heavy, heavier than I was used to, I just dragged my sort of foot, the left foot first, and like it tore a big flap of skin oh. off my toe. And then I said to them, look, I'm going to just walk. And then like half a mile later, I did exactly the same with the other foot. So I had these two chunks of flesh coming off my toes. It was horrible. You know what didn't, what I didn't tell people there as well? Just tell, what was the weather like? It was hot. 
you know, so this was... So the ground is like melting. All the hottest days of this year were during my challenge. I mean, there was a couple of days where the ground was red hot, you know, like tar was melting, which you don't notice if you're walking in your mm-hmm. boots or in your car. But I noticed because I was at that point sort of running through Dartmoor with these hedges on both sides of the road. There's no paths. There's nowhere you can stop. There was no verge. So I was walking and thinking my feet are actually burning. So I better run, you know, because my feet are off the ground a bit more. But I, I ran until I couldn't run anymore and there's still no paths. So I had to walk and then my feet started to burn again. Mm-hmm. So I had to run and that went on for ages until finally I sort of arrived in this village and just threw myself on the floor so I didn't have to touch it anymore. But if Chris was in agony on the road, his wife Hengame was a nervous wreck, following it from home. Chris was really suffering. He was really and truly suffering. Watching Chris struggling and sometimes messaging me two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning and says that he is in so much pain, cannot fall asleep. And then seeing videos and pictures of his feet that like, you know, infection is oozing out of his feet and he has to again continue walking a marathon barefoot the next day. It just was really, really hard, really hard because he's the love of my life, you know. Part of me wanted to say, just leave it. Just, just get up and come home. And, but instead I had to say to him that no, carry on carry on and, you know, you can do it and encourage him to carry on despite being, seeing him, he is in really so much pain. How did, how did you feel when you're thinking, your feet and how they are, the heat or everything that's coming in that you haven't really catered for? Yeah. Um, how's that feel when you know what you're doing it for and the fact that you're almost, you literally cannot stop because then what you, you, you're feeling like you've actually, you're letting Hasty down, you're letting everything. How'd you get through that? Because I'm sitting here thinking, especially with my low pay fresh, threshold, I don't know how I'd find the strength to muster it to, to carry on now. You know, all the way through this thing, I haven't said this to many people, but I had nightmares every night, you know. So I would wake up three, four times a night sweating, cold sweat, because I was sort of in a panic. My body didn't know what was going on and I knew I had to do it again. And I wake up in the morning and sort of think, oh, Christ, it's another day. I've got to do this again. Your body and your mind is saying, you know, you just need to stop. And it tells you things like, I think you're you're going to injure yourself. You know, you'll have a permanent injury if unless you stop, you know, because it wants you to stop. Mm -hmm. That's that. Yeah. Yeah, And then occasionally I just, you know, when when it got really bad, I just sat down. I threw my bag in the ground and I sat in my bag and would just think, you know, and feel sorry for myself. I don't know what's happening today. That's not true. (laughs) It's funny how we tell ourselves lies, isn't it? (sighs) Carrying too much weight. In my head. I just can't can't move. It's paralyzing. And I had two things going for me. I think one was that I always thought, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, if I don't finish this thing, you know, Hasty's life isn't going to change. Yes. And that's a huge amount of pressure. Massive amount. To put on yourself. But the other thing was people were amazing. So by the time I had made it to St. Austell, I think 
three days in, mm. people were start. This was starting to get some traction. People were starting to pick it up on social yes. media. Yes. People started to know what was going on. And I remember at one point, sat on the edge of this town. Just I was on my bag, on a verge at the side of a busy road. You know, there was no paths or anything. Mm. You know, and I was just thinking, this is so rubbish. And this guy pulled up on the other side of the road and came across, and he said, "I've seen you on Facebook." A stranger. Total stranger. I didn't, never met the man. And he said, I've seen you on Facebook, you know, and I think what you're doing is incredible. And he said, I have kids, you know, and they've been sick in the past. And he sort of told me his story. And, you know, that gave me a bit of a boost. When people care, yes. you know, it really just gives you energy. And, and that happened the whole way through the journey. And I never really understood why people came to see me. And I realized afterwards, I think that when, we, when I made videos, I was just honest. Mm. If I was feeling terrible, I said I feel terrible. Yeah. And when I was worried about Hasty and what her future looked like, I just talked about it, mm -hmm. you know, as if I was talking to myself. And people who heard it, I think, just felt what I was feeling. By now, the Barefoot Challenge had become a movement. People from all over the country watched Chris as he hobbled through their towns and cities. His bravery inspired Jake, a personal trainer in the army, to join him on the road. He took three days off of work to be by his side. I quickly moved the car into position, jumped out the car, honestly so quick, put my rucksack on and just and just ran because I had to sort of play catch up. And I was just, it was almost, it was quite weird having seen it on social media to then see the, the person there running in front of you. And I suppose the first thing I looked at was the fact he didn't have any shoes on. And I was like, wow, he really doesn't have any shoes on. Looking at him watching the ground, and the ground was terrible everywhere, and he just kept going. There was no sort of change in pace. He was just going as fast as he could to get to the end of the day. Um, so just that determination, it's just I've never seen anything like it before. What was it like to have the backing of the military? It was immense, you mean. So many people, I think inside our organization, it just went like viral, mm. like overnight almost. And uh, everywhere I went, people just came out and got their kit on and, and ran beside me, you know. But Chris's determination to push past the pain landed him in hospital. His feet were shredded and oozing pus. Doctors advised him to stop, but Chris had an important pit stop to make on the journey. Downing Street where he'd deliver a petition on behalf of children with rare diseases. By now, every step was agony. Going to Downing Street was just torture. How? Why? My feet were in incredible pain. You know, if I squeezed my foot, like yellow stuff would oh. come out of it. Um, and that morning, uh, my No, 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 Chris, literally, you've got to explain. Every step is now excruciating. Everyone, yeah. So I went out of the hospital on crutches and I, I think I did two miles on crutches and my son was beside me and because they came, they realised I was broken at this point and he said, I'll walk beside you, daddy. It was hard on crutches and they bandaged my feet so tight it was painful. So at some point I just carried the crutches and then I tore the bandages off. I just thought, just, let's just get this done. And we just ran to the end of the day. And my son, who was 11, mm. ran 23 or four miles that day. Unbelievable. After two days of walking, Chris made it to number 10, where he delivered the petition by hand. 10,000 people had backed the campaign. 
He'd overcome a foot infection and mental barriers to get here. But as he continued on his walk alone, he started to think seriously about his daughter and what her future might look like. You know, once you start walking, you get caught in the routine of walking. And then when you sit down somewhere and you have like two minutes to reflect, you find yourself in a quiet moment and you think, you know, I worry about things like, who's going to look after Hasty when I'm dead? You know, is she going to be able to finish school? I don't know. That's terrifying, you know. Is she going to be able to have friends? You know, simple stuff. You want your kids to have friends, people who love them and protect them. But when you can't speak, you know, to communicate, it's hard to maintain friendships, you know. And, you know, I I worry about all of these things all the time. And that's why we want to create a gene therapy. Mm -hmm. Because kids don't have to suffer with this, you know. Their lives can be so much better. And it's a real shame, I think, that it's fallen on our watch, you know, and we've had to do it. But we knew if we didn't do the hard miles and raise the money and start the charity and get this work done with a great lab, that nobody else would do it. After six weeks of hard graft, debilitating injuries and detours, Chris made it to Scotland. At last, he was within touching distance of his goal, the finish line at Edinburgh Castle, where his wife, two boys, and Hasty were waiting. So, we're, we're in the last leg. We're back on we're back on the road. My 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 feet are hurting me just thinking about it. So, um, tell me about the last ten miles. Tell me when you can you first see Edinburgh Castle in the distance. So, you come over like this massive hill. Uh, at like 16 miles out and you can see Edinburgh and it was a really clear hot day someone said there's Edinburgh Castle and I thought boom that's it we're nearly there 16 miles we've done 684 miles 16 to go and at that point you know it took me 35 days you know this is the end it took me to that point to realise sort of don't need to be miserable and I was in pain but I thought I looked around I remember thinking sunny it's warm it's not too hot you know and i've got like 10 great people around me who've come here to see me and help me i thought i should actually really enjoy this you know and that was incredible but it, it was really hard. I was also exhausted, you know, mm. 35 days of sleep loss and pain and, you know, being ill and not being able to eat food fast enough. And we get into Edinburgh and, you know, there was loads of people who recognised me and, you know, sort of clapped us through and kept us going. But I was just hungry to get to the end. I know. Who was you, who was you walking with? Was your missus there? with the boys there? No. So the, I knew they were at the castle right. waiting for us, right. you know. And uh, that's what I was running for, you know. I just wanted to get to the end and just get it done, you know. And once we got into the city, then I sort of, I thought, we're really close now. We're two miles away. We just, let's just go. Started moving really quickly, you know, we're running up paths and... <laughs> Disrupting traffic. <laughs> so tell me about the Royal Mile. Yeah, that was incredible. So we 
it was we were just like coming through these side streets yeah. you know and past restaurants and other places and it's reasonably quiet and then we turned on turned left onto the royal mile and you know there's people lining the route sort of left side right side hundreds of people which i didn't expect at all and then a piper started playing in the background and you know people started clapping and i saw the three kids because they were two boys were wearing our yellow t-shirts and Hasty was there and I saw my wife was there and Hasty just, you know, I could see her, she was holding her hands in front of her face and she just ran down the street towards me and I just fell to my knees, you know. I had no more energy. I had nothing left to give, you know, and I had been running every day just to see her at the end and we had raised so much money, you know, far more than we expected. How much did you raise there, Chris? By the time we got there, we had started off, hoped to raise 50 grand. By the time we finished, we had raised, I think, 584 or something like that. And that was the money we needed to pay for the research. And everybody was clapping, you know, and we walked up to the castle, which was sort of my, mm -hmm. in my mind, that was it, cross the line. Uh -huh into the castle and people just gathered around in a big crowd and I just spoke to them. That's, that's big. I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, I can't, you know, something that just uh, kind of got me there. I can't reach because you've been in the army, you can take all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Give me that tissue, bro. Oh, you want tissue? <laughs> um, I could literally feel, I could literally feel that, that last mile there, what you, you said when you went to the knees there, that got me. Chris, you must understand that what you've done is, is heroic, my friend. Because I sit here and, and I look at you with your daughter and I can only think about my own daughter is the same age. And I look at myself and I think, I don't think I could do that. I'd like to think I could. But what you've done is made me realise that if I did have to, then it can be done. So all I can say is thanks for coming on, my friend. I can only wish you the best and your family all the very, very best. And good luck with Asti, my friend. Thank you so much for having Cheers. me. I appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure, Chris. Absolute pleasure. Head to our show notes for details about how you can help children like Hasty. Next time on Everyday People, a young footballer's selfless final act. John was just too good to go to waste, you know, and he had this beating heart, this heart that was just amazing. If you like what you've heard so far and think you've got an amazing story to tell, I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch at everydaypeople at somethingelse.com. That's everydaypeople at somethingelse.com without the G. Everyday People is a Something Else production hosted by me, Ian Wright. Produced by Jade Scott. Our assistant producer is Grace Laker. Our executive producers are Ollie Wilson and Chris Skinner. The sound and mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. With thanks to Paul Smith, Joe Sykes, Arlie Adlington and Steve Ackerman.
Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.